Chapter 12 of the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Peace, love, and joy for the justified. Romans 5, 1-11. We reach a pause in the Apostle's thought with the close of the last paragraph. We may reverently imagine, as in spirit we listen to his dictation, that a pause comes also in his work, that he is silent and Tertius puts down the pen, and they spend their hearts a while on worshipping recollection and realisation. The Lord delivered up, his people justified, the Lord risen again, alive forevermore. Here was matter for love, joy, and wonder. But the letter must proceed, and the argument has its fullest and most wonderful developments yet to come. It has now already expounded the tremendous need of justifying mercy for every soul of man. It has shown how faith, always and only, is the way to appropriate that mercy, the way of God's will, and manifestly also in its own nature, the way of deepest fitness. We have been allowed to see faith in illustrative action in Abraham, who by faith absolutely, without the least advantage of traditional privilege, received justification with the vast concurrent blessings which it carried. Lastly, we have heard St. Paul dictate to Tertius for the Romans and for us those summarizing words, 425, in which we now have God's own certificate of the triumphant efficacy of that atoning work, which sustains the promise in order that the promise may sustain us believing. We are now to approach the glorious theme of the life of the justified, this is to be seen not only as a state whose basis is the reconciliation of the law, and whose gate and walls are the covenant promise. It is to appear as a state warmed with eternal love, irradiated with the prospect of glory. In it, the man, knit up with Christ his head, his bridegroom, his all, yields himself with joy to the God who has received him. In the living power of the heavenly spirit, who perpetually delivers him from himself, he obeys, prays, works, and suffers, in a liberty which is only not yet that of heaven, and in which he is maintained to the end by him who has planned his full personal salvation from eternity to eternity. It has been the temptation of Christians sometimes to regard the truth and exposition of justification as if there were a certain hardness and, as it were, dryness about it as if it were a topic rather for the schools than for life. If excuses have ever been given for such a view, they must come from other quarters than the epistle to the Romans. Christian teachers of many periods may have discussed justification as coldly as if they were writing a law book, or again they may have examined it as if it were a truth terminating in itself, the omega as well as the alpha of salvation, and then it has been misrepresented, of course. For the Apostle certainly does not discuss it dryly. He lays deep, indeed, the foundations of law and atonement, but he does it in the manner of a man who is not drawing the plan of a refuge, but calling his reader from the tempest into what is not only a refuge but a home. And again, he does not discuss it in isolation. He spends his fullest, largest, and most loving expositions on its intense and vital connection with concurrent truths. He is about now to take us through a noble vestibule, into the sanctuary of the life of the accepted, the life of union, of surrender, of the Holy Ghost. Verse 1 to verse 2. Justified, therefore, on terms of faith, we have peace towards our God. We possess in regard of him the quietness and assurance of acceptance through our Lord Jesus Christ, thus delivered up and raised up for us. 
through whom we have actually found our introduction, our free admission by our faith into this grace, this unearned acceptance for another's sake in which we stand, instead of falling ruined, sentenced at the tribunal. And we exult not with the sinful boasting of the legalist, but in hope, literally on hope, ep epidi, as reposing on the promised prospect of the glory of our God, the light of the heavenly vision and fruition of our justifier, and the splendor of an eternal service of him in that fruition. Verse 3. Not only so, but we exult too in our tribulations, with a better fortitude than the Stoic's artificial serenity, knowing that the tribulation works out, develops patient persistency, as it occasions proof after proof of the power of God in our weakness, and thus generates the habit of reliance, and then the patient persistency develops proof, brings out in experience as a proved fact that through Christ we are not what we were, and then the proof develops hope, solid and definite expectation of continuing grace and final glory, and in particular of the Lord's return. And the hope does not shame, does not disappoint, it is a hope sure and steadfast, for it is the hope of those who now know that they are objects of eternal love. Because the love of our God has been poured into our hearts. His love to us has been, as it were, diffused through our consciousness, poured out in a glad experience as rain from the cloud, as floods from the rising spring, through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. Here first is mentioned explicitly in the Apostle's argument, we do not reckon chapter 1 verse 4 as in the argument, the Blessed Spirit, the Lord, the Holy Ghost. Hitherto the occasion for the mention has hardly arisen. The considerations have been mainly upon the personal guilt of the sinner and the objective fact of the atonement and the exercise of faith, of trust in God, as a genuine personal act of man. With a definite purpose, we may reverently think, the discussion of faith has been kept thus far clear of the thought of anything lying behind faith, of any grace-giving faith. For whether or no faith is the gift of God, it is most certainly the act of man. None should assert this more decidedly than those who hold, as we do, that Ephesians 2.8 does teach that where saving faith is, it is there because God has given it. But how does he give it? not surely by implanting a new faculty, but by so opening the soul to God in Christ that the divine magnet effectually calls the man to a willing repose upon such a God. But the man does this as an act himself. He trusts God as genuinely, as personally, as much with his own faculty of trust as he trusts a man whom he sees to be quite trustworthy and precisely fit to meet an imperative need. Thus, it is often the work of the evangelist and the teacher to insist upon the duty rather than the grace of faith, to bid men rather thank God for faith when they have believed, than wait for the sense of an afflatus before believing. And is this not what St. Paul does here? At this point of his argument, and not before, he reminds the believer that his possession of peace, of happiness, of hope, has been attained and realized, not ultimately of himself, but through the working of the eternal spirit. The insight into mercy, into a propitiation provided by divine love, and so into the holy secret of the divine love itself, has been given him by the Holy Ghost, who has taken of the things of Christ and shown them to him, and secretly handled his heart, so that the fact of the love of God is a part of experience at last. The man has been told of his great need, and of the sure and open refuge, and has stepped through its peaceful gate in the act of trusting the message and the will of God. 
now he is asked to look round, to look back, and bless the hand which, when he was outside in the naked field of death, opened his eyes to see and guided his will to choose. What a retrospect it is! Let us trace it from the first words of this paragraph again. For here is the sure fact of our acceptance and reason of it, and the method. Therefore, let not that word be forgotten, our justification is no arbitrary matter whose causelessness suggests an illusion or a precarious peace. Therefore, it rests upon an antecedent in the logical chain of divine facts. We have read that antecedent, chapter 425, Jesus our Lord was given up because of our transgressions and was raised up because of our justification. We assented to that fact, we have accepted him only and altogether in this work of his. Therefore, we are justified. Vigiothentes, placed by an act of divine love, working in the line of divine law, among those whom the judge accepts, that he may embrace them as father. Then, in this possession of the peace of our acceptance, thus led in through the gate of the promise with the footstep of faith, we find inside our refuge far more than merely safety. We look up from within the blessed walls, sprinkled with atoning blood, and we see above them the hope of glory, invisible outside. And we turn to our present life within them, for all our life is to be lived within that broad sanctuary now, and we find resources provided there for a present as well as a prospective joy. We address ourselves to the discipline of the place, for it has its power, the refuge is home, but it is also school, and we find, when we begin to try it, that the discipline is full of joy. It brings out into a joyful consciousness the power we now have, in him who has accepted us, in him who is our acceptance, to suffer and to serve in love. Our life has become a life not of peace only, but of the hope which animates peace and makes it flow as a river. From hour to hour we enjoy the never-disappointing hope of grace for grace, new grace for the next new need, and beyond it and above it the certainties of the hope of glory. To drop our metaphor of the sanctuary for that of the pilgrimage, we find ourselves upon a pathway, steep and rocky, but always mounting into purer air, and so as to show us nobler prospects, and at the summit the pathway will be continued and transfigured into the golden street of the city, the same track but within the gate of heaven. Into all this the Holy Ghost has led us. He has been at the heart of the whole internal process. He has made the thunder of the law articulate to our conscience. He gave us faith by manifesting Christ, and in Christ he has poured out in our hearts the love of God. For now the Apostle takes up that word, the love of God, and holds it to our sight, and we see in its pure glory no vague abstraction, but the face and the work of Jesus Christ. Such is the context into which we now advance. He is reasoning on. For Christ, when we were still weak, he has set justification before us in its majestic lawfulness. But he has now to expand its mighty love, of which the Holy Ghost has made us conscious in our hearts. We are to see in the atonement not only a guarantee that we have a valid title to a just acceptance. We are to see in it the love of the Father and the Son, so that not our security only, but our bliss may be full. Verse 6. For Christ, we still being weak, gentle euphemism for our utter impotence, our guilty inability to meet the sinless claim of the law of God, in season, in the fullness of time, when the ages of precept and of failure had done their work, and man had learnt something to purpose of the lesson of self-despair, for the ungodly died. 
uper asevon, concerning them, with reference to them, that is to say, in this context of saving mercy, in their interests, for their rescue as their propitiation. The ungodly, or more literally still, without the article ungodly ones, a designation general and inclusive for those for whom he died. Above, 4 verse 5, we saw the word used with a certain limitation, as of the worst among the sinful. But here, surely with a solemn paradox, it covers the whole field of the fall. The ungodly here are not the flagrant and disreputable only. They are all who are not in harmony with God, the potential as well as the actual doers of grievous sin. For them, Christ died, not lived, let us remember, but died. It was a question not of example, nor of suasion, nor even of utterances of divine compassion. It was a question of law and guilt, and it was to be met only by the death sentence and the death fact, such death as he died, of whom, a little while before, this same correspondent had written to the converts of Galatia, 3.13, Christ bought us out from the curse of the law when he became a curse for us. All the untold emphasis of the sentence and of the thought lies here upon those last words, upon each and all of them, four ungodly ones, he died, uper asevon, apethane. The sequel shows this to us, he proceeds, verse 7 to verse 8, For scarcely, with difficulty and in rare instances, for a just man will one die. Scarcely, he will not say never, for the good man, the man answering in some measure the ideal of gracious and not only of legal goodness, perhaps someone actually ventures to die. But God commends, as by a glorious contrast, his love, his as above all current human love, his own love, then towards us, because while we were still sinners, and as such repulsive to the Holy One, Christ for us did die. We are not to read this passage as if it were a statistical assertion as to the facts of human love and its possible sacrifices. The moral argument will not be affected if we are able as we shall be, to adduce cases where unregenerate man has given even his life to save the life of one or of many to whom he is not emotionally or naturally attracted. All that is necessary to St. Paul's tender plea for the love of God is the certain fact that the cases of death, even on behalf of one who morally deserves a great sacrifice, are relatively very, very few. The thought of merit is the ruling thought in the connection. He labours to bring out the sovereign loving-kindness, which went even to the length and depth of death, by reminding us that, whatever moved it, it was not moved, even in the lowest imaginable degree, by any merit, no, nor by any congruity in us. And yet we were sought and saved. He who planned the salvation and provided it was the eternal lawgiver and judge, he who loved us is himself eternally right, to whom all our wrong is unutterably repellent. What then is he as love who, being also right, stays not till he has given his son to the death of the atonement? So we have indeed a warrant to believe the love of God, 1 John 4.16. Yes, to believe it, we look within us and it is incredible. If we have really seen ourselves, we have seen ground for a sorrowful conviction that he who is eternal right must view us with aversion. But if we have really seen Christ, we have seen ground for, not feeling at all, it may be at this moment, but believing that God is love and loves us. What is it to believe him? It is to take him at his word, to act altogether not upon our internal consciousness, but upon his warrant. 
We look at the cross, or rather, we look at the crucified Lord Jesus in his resurrection. We read at his feet these words of his apostle, and we go away to take God at his assurance that we, unlovely, are beloved. My child, said a dying French saint as she gave a last embrace to her daughter, I have loved you because of what you are. My heavenly Father, to whom I go, has loved me malgré moi. Verse 9 to verse 11. But how does the divine reasoning now advance? From glory to glory, from acceptance by the Holy One, who is love, to present and endless preservation in his beloved one. Therefore, much more justified now in his blood, as it were in its lava of ablution, or again within its circle of sprinkling as it marks the precincts of our inviolable sanctuary, we shall be kept safe through him who now lives to administer the blessings of his death from the wrath, the wrath of God, in its present imminence over the head of the unreconciled, and in its final fall in that day. For if being enemies with no initial love to him who is love, nay, when we were hostile to his claims, as such subject to the hostility of his law, we were reconciled to our God through the death of his Son, God coming to judicial peace with us, and we brought to submissive peace with him, much more, being reconciled, shall we be kept safe in his life, in the life of the risen one who now lives for us and in us and we in him. Not only so, but we shall be kept exalting too in our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received this reconciliation. Here, by anticipation, he indicates already the mighty issues of the act of justification in our life of union with the Lord who died for us and lived again. In the sixth chapter, this will be more fully unfolded, but he cannot altogether reserve it so long. As he has advanced from the law aspect of our acceptance to its love aspect, so now with this latter he gives us at once the life aspect, our vital incorporation with our Redeemer, our part and lot in his resurrection life. Nowhere in this whole epistle is that subject expounded so fully as in the later epistles, Colossians and Ephesians, the inspirer led his servant all over that region then in his Roman prison, but not now. But he had brought him into the region from the first, and we see it here present to his thought, though not in the foreground of his discourse. Kept safe in his life, not by his life, but in his life. We are livingly knit to him, the living one. From one point of view, we are accused men at the bar, wonderfully transformed by the judge's provision into welcomed and honoured friends of the law and the lawgiver. From another point of view, we are dead men in the grave, wonderfully vivified and put into a spiritual connection with the mighty life of our life-giving Redeemer. The aspects are perfectly distinct. They belong to different orders of thought, yet they are in the closest and most genuine relation. The justifying sacrifice procures the possibility of our regeneration into the life of Christ. Our union by faith with the Lord who died and lives brings us into actual part and lot in his justifying merits. And our part and lot in those merits, our acceptance in the Beloved, assures us again of the permanence of the mighty love which will maintain us in our part and lot in his life. This is the view of the matter which is before us here. Thus the Apostle meets our need on every side. He shows us the holy law satisfied for us. He shows us the eternal love liberated upon us. He shows us the Lord's own life clasped around us, imparted to us. Our life is hid in God with Christ, who is our life. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Shall we not exult in God through him? 
and now we are to learn something of that great covenant headship in which we and he are one. Detached Notes to Chapter 12 Irenen echomen, Omicron, we have peace. Irenen echomen, Omega, let us have peace. Which did St. Paul write? On the whole, after long thought upon the evidence, we decide for the former reading. The documentary witness is strong for the latter. For those who place the great unseal manuscripts in the place of practical decision, Echomen, Omega, has a clear verdict in its favour. But the other class of copies, the cursive, later on the whole than the unseals, but probably often representing correction rather than corruption, are greatly in favour of Echomen, Omicron. The evidence of ancient versions and of quotations by early Christian writers inclines on the whole for Echomen, Omega, but in the study of a reading, the argument and context, of course, claim attention, for most surely the original reading, whatever it was, was pertinent. Now here the question of pertinence seems to us to lead to a decided verdict for Echomen, Omicron. The apostle is engaged here altogether with assertion, instruction, exhortation is to come later. Through this whole paragraph he does nothing but assert facts and principles. Is it to be believed that he begins it with a disjointed exhortation? In itself, the exhortation would bear a meaning perfectly intelligible. Let us have peace would mean let us enjoy peace. So, echomen, omega charin, Hebrews 12.28, means practically let us use grace. Neither exhortation would mean that we do not yet possess, in respect of the Lord's gift, peace and grace respectively, but, we repeat it, the context here seems decisive against the presence here of any exhortation. We want logically assertion. The interchange of omega and omicron in manuscripts is, as a fact, frequent. See the case carefully considered and decided for echomen, omicron, in Dr. Scrivener's Introduction to the Criticism of the New Testament, page 625. Katalasin, katalache. It is sometimes held that these words denote reconciliation in the sense of man's laying aside his distrust, reluctance, and resistance towards God, not of God's laying aside his holy displeasure against man, and that for this latter idea, that of persuading an offended superior to grant peace, we should need the words the there, which we have Matthew 5.24, and in the Septuagint in, for example, 1 Samuel 29.4, where the English has, wherewith should he reconcile himself to his master?, and the alare, which does not occur in the New Testament. But katalare, and its verb, is as a fact used in the Greek of the Apocrypha in connections where the thought is just that of the clemency of a king induced to pardon. See, for example, Second Maccabees 5.20, where the English version reads, The great Lord being reconciled, the temple was set up. So, 2 Maccabees 1.5, where we have the prayer, English version, God be at one with you. Katalagia umin. Thus, no elaborate distinction can safely be drawn between the two sets of compounds. And there is no place in the New Testament where the meaning conciliation of an offended party would not well suit katalasiste, etc. The present passage, Romans 5, 10, and 11, would be practically meaningless otherwise. The whole thought is of the divine mercy, providing a way for accepting grace. To receive, then, katalagen, is a phrase which, by its very form as well as its connection, points to the thought not of reluctance overcome, but mercy found. The word atonement, authorized version verse 11, needs remark. It seems certain that its derivation is at one See Skeet Etymological Dictionary. 
though an etymological connection with Verzönen, Dutch Verzönen, has been made. See Hofmeier, The Blessed Life, page 25. But as Trench remarks, synonyms of the New Testament, see Catalare, the usage of English has now long attached the idea of propitiation to the word atonement, which should therefore be avoided as a rendering for Catalare. End of chapter 12.